Hello, you're listening to the We Are History podcast. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. And we're sitting in my living room today recording this episode, which I'm very excited about, John, because it's my... um, it's my nerdy area of obsession. Obsession is the right word. The, the poster on the wall. You've got pictures on your wall on this subject. This is how obsessed you are with it. I am. Uh, we are talking today about... Sorry, I'm going to sort the bloody dog out. It's the one you've been lobbying for since we started doing this podcast. It is. We're, how many have we recorded now? Uh, about a dozen, I think. About a dozen and you finally let me talk about the thing <laughs> that I've been dying to talk about. I, I am a little bit obsessed, it's fair to say, with what we're talking about today is... Um, well, it's Cold War era, which is my... Favourite Favorite time. time. She loves a bit of Cold War. And, and I love it. And uh, we are talking about the how the UK was planning for a nuclear attack. Great. Right. And I think we forget sort of sitting here in 2020, we sort of forget that people really thought it was going to happen. Right. Yes, you say they thought it was going to happen, but they sort of thought, but there's not much you can do. So, you know, they're, they're, it wasn't like everyone went out and, and, and created a, you know, shelter in the garden like they did in the Second World War. No. So maybe we give a little bit of background first. It, Cold War, we're talking of a period from roughly 1949 through to roughly 1991. Okay. Um, so it's that big old chunk of, yep. of the 20th century. Um, and during that time, of course, we have various different governments. Um, so strategies and things changed during that time about how we would deal yeah. with uh, a nuclear attack. But one thing that was pretty constant was the West's tension with Russia. Yes. Um, and obviously um, it, it was, the, the Russians had been allies in World War II yeah. and at the end of World War II, uh, much of Europe divvied up between Britain and America. Well, and... East and West, I wouldn't sort of, yeah. I wouldn't claim Britain had much agency in sort of West Germany. Well, you did have well, troops there, I suppose, didn't it? Yeah, West yeah. Germany and, yeah. Um, yeah, so you've got the West, you've got the NATO, the NATO countries, and you've got the, 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 the Soviet Warsaw block, Pact, Eastern Bloc. Block without a K. Interesting. Why has yes. Block got no K on it, Angela? I do you know. I've never <laughs> questioned it. Uh, presumably because it's in some sort of Eastern European language. <laughs> Maybe. That's, that's my answer. Maybe it was their rationing after the war. And they said, we can't, you've got to, got to you've lose got to one of those. you got to save the case. Yeah. Now, during this time... Um, the U.S. obviously was the first to use a nuclear weapon. Yes, in, in uh, Hiroshima yes. and Nagasaki, famously, um, and that sort of gave. Well, so people knew what we were talking about. So, for the, for the, the sort of shadow of nuclear war hanging over the world after 1945, people had seen what they could do. They could see yeah. what a nuclear. Except they weren't always that honest about it. I've got a quote here from this rather good book that you recommended to me: "Nuclear War in the UK" by Terrace Young. And uh, the, um, the the leaflet, Civil Defence and the Atom Bomb, says, In the city of Hiroshima, over half the people within a mile from the explosion are still alive. Contamination is not likely to last long. Well, so... this is something we'll come to later, that the what the government told the public and what the government knew right. were, as always, quite different things. Yes, yes. Um, so during this time, um, like you say, the Russia tested their first nuclear weapon in 1949. So okay. that's when they tested um, their first A-bomb, um, atomic bomb. And that's when the British government starts getting a bit nervous. Yes. So I would yeah. date the, the fear of the nuclear war from 49. I'd say the Cold War sort of started even before the Second World War ended, if you know what I mean, with the communists mm. in Greece being suppressed. Um, but in terms of the nuclear Cold War... 49, I suppose, is when you date that from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, what 
I think quite a good question to ask is so it's really hard to imagine what a nuclear attack means. And of course, it means something very different today than it did in Hiroshima because yes. the missiles that people have today in 2020 are 10, 15, 100 times. They looked at Hiroshima and said, that's not enough destruction. Uh, yes. That's not enough do? mass murder. Uh, Let's dial it up a bit. Now, a, a nuclear attack sort of um, has various stages, right? So you've got yeah. the initial contact of a nuclear bomb. You have the flash, the light, the blast, the shockwave and the sound, and the initial thermal radiation uh, released by the explosion, right? That's your That's initial your impact, ground zero, nothing is going to survive. Okay. Um, but what causes more deaths in the long run uh, would be fallout, right. right? Now, fallout is a sort of dust yeah. that... Um, is released after the bomb has gone off. The, the radioactive radioactive particles yeah. get sucked up into the air and they spread with the weather. Right, right so, like we saw in that program Chernobyl. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Um, so depending on the weather conditions, depending on wind, depending on so many things, these could travel for miles and miles and miles and for weeks and months can cause uh, real problems for people. Uh, long term. Um, radiation health. sickness, yep. um, you know, in the longer term, uh, sort of cancers and uh, obviously would have implications for farming and all sorts right. of and that, over that, a really large area. And so this is why you wanted to do a comedy podcast about this. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the other the other effect of course is um, there'd be a massive electromagnetic pulse which would disrupt communications so that wouldn't have any so Radio endanger. 5 Live you wouldn't be able to get that no Ooh, no more no. 5 Live no more BBC 3 no more BBC 3 um, my god this is quite serious now. I know it's bad now you're worried see <laughs> uh, now we do know obviously the Cold War ended in 1991 no nuclear bombs went off during this period but there were times we came close yes okay Um, it could be argued that had the Suez crisis gone a different way? You know, yep. had we not pulled out when we did? Um, NASA was being armed by the Soviets by that point. Well, the Russians actually threatened to uh, fire missiles on London uh, during did. that point. I think that was just a bit of a, a saber rattling, but uh, still pretty scary times. Yeah, so that was um, 1956. And of course, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. Yes, that was probably the closest in the whole period, I would say, that was we came to a... Absolutely. We will war. do an episode on that one. Will we? Oh, exciting. Is, uh, it, it is an exciting exactly. yeah, yeah. sort of... Um, That's um, when Bob Dylan wrote Blowing in the Wind, I think. Or some, one of those songs. Or Masters of War, anyway. Bob Dylan wrote some good songs during that week. <laughs> and that's the most important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we nearly all were <laughs> annihilated, yeah. but... But Bob didn't some good, good tunes. Um, <laughs> and then there was the um, Able Archer exercise in 1983, so, which fewer people know about. Okay, well, are you going to um, talk about that now? or you want to? Uh, well, I can briefly mention what it was. So it was a mass uh, NATO exercise yeah. um, about, uh, you know, uh, regularly held these exercises across NATO countries about yeah. what would happen in the event of a nuclear strike. But some intelligence was misinterpreted by uh, the KGB and so intelligence went back to the Russian authorities that a strike was imminent. Wow. Um, I didn't know about this. So this yeah. is 83. This is when I was this going on my CND marches. And it actually and... happened on the 9th of November, 1983, which is my birthday. Oh. Um, and if you watch, uh, there's a TV series that was on a few years ago. I think it's still on all four called Deutschland 83. Oh, yeah. Um, which is about this. Um, but oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. exercise was that. called Able Archer. They were the times when we probably right. came closest to um, actual missiles actual being launched. Missiles being launched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it didn't happen. In fact, I would add one more. In the Korean War, I think one of the commanders there requested permission to use nuclear weapons. And, and, and Eisenhower was pretty no. up for it during the Korean War. Oh, was he? War. I thought it was sort of whoever ruled it then, because I thought it was him who said, no, that's ridiculous. No, I think he um, he signed 
if I remember rightly, this is something I've not read up for this, but I believe he signed a thing to authorise it should the situation... Well, I mean, that's scary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Which was why then during Suez, his right. sort of reticence for military right. action, people were going, yeah, well, you weren't so reticent in right. Korea, mate. But anyway, that's what was happening during that block of time in the 20th century. Just to step back a minute, the psychology of thinking that you are now in a situation where uh, the whole planet could be destroyed. There's a there's a, there's a a joke in uh, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, written sort of 200 years earlier, uh, where a professor is working on a bomb that will destroy the whole world. And it's done as a satirical idea in sort of, you know, yeah. uh, way back then. And, um, and suddenly they, this becomes a reality. This becomes a thing that could happen. Uh, and people have to live under the, under the notion that the whole of the world could be destroyed. There's a quote here from Bertrand Russell. This is here, you know, a very respected uh, philosopher and academic who says, one must expect a war between USA and USSR, which will begin with the total destruction of London. I think the war will last 30 years and will leave a world without civilized people from which everything will have to build afresh, a process taking, say, 500 years. <laughs> uh, anyway, to the bride and groom. <laughs> yeah. Bertrand Russell, of course, we'll come on to him later yeah. because he was one of the... Uh, committee of 100 um, centuries yeah. against. But, but what, a, what, a, what a mindset that you had to get yourself into that, you know, mm. it might all, everything might be destroyed and your family and your home and your whole city would be destroyed in an instant like Hiroshima was. Yeah. And I, and I guess sort of it's, it's, it's so inconceivable, I suppose, that it almost feels not real. I think that's the key to the psychology of why we didn't all have nuclear shelters under our house. I yeah. think it was so awful that people couldn't really live with the concept Day, on a daily basis that this yeah. might happen so didn't build it was different in different countries of course yes. so um switzerland is the only country in the world that has enough nuclear shelters for the entire population wow um and in fact i believe it's still in their building regulations that every new building from the mid 20th century had to have a nuclear shelter built in the right. basement um and I believe Sweden is second. Sweden has enough for about two thirds of the population. That's amazing. The, the two most sort of uh, peaceful countries. I suppose yeah. they've got no military expenditure of any significance. No, and so I they guess Sweden is in a possibly quite a strategic position. Yeah, yeah, there would be between Russia and, uh, yeah. and the UK and America. But yeah, um, um, I mean, if we get a chance, I'd like to talk about uh, the, the, the bunker mentality in America because I've just read a whole book about that. That was uh, fascinating. That you know, the, uh, the Kennedy government tried to encourage people to build um, nuclear bunkers in homes. But there's a but there's a there's a thing that happens. If you say, oh, we are we could survive a nuclear war, it sort of puts the military into a situation where, okay, we can use these things. So there's a there's a balancing act that has to be uh, negotiated there. Do we actually entertain using these weapons? Are we going to put ourselves in a situation where our population think if we can all run into our cellars for two weeks and live off tin tuna um, and use the chemical toilet, does that make nuclear war viable? And the answer is always no. no. Nuclear <laughs> war is never viable. Um, but, the, but there was a worry that building uh, too many bunkers would make people think it was. Mm. And also the government knew much more than the people did the fact that that wouldn't be the case. Yes. And that yes. Actually, you know, all out war means all out war and, and the chances of survival were a lot less yeah, yeah. Than, than but we'll come on to that yeah later on definitely so what what was the government thinking around this time in 1955 the government convened a committee called the strafe committee yeah. and the idea of the committee was to uh, come up with a report on what the effects would be um, of a successful soviet attack and how the government should 
prepare for such a thing. At this point, they were talking about um, a, a night attack on a main population center using 10 hydrogen bombs, each containing 10 Megatron nuclear warheads. Um, I should say in the early 50s, that's when Russia started testing the H-bomb, right. hydrogen bomb. <clears throat> so there's has... the A-bomb. So if you know that the, um, about nuclear bombs, in Tom and Jerry, the A-bomb had a big A on it and the <laughs> H-bomb had a big H. That's about the limit of my technical knowledge on this subject. Do you understand the difference between a hydrogen bomb and an atom bomb? Well, only in that the devastation from a hydrogen bomb yeah, it's much, a great much greater. deal more than that yeah. from an atomic bomb. Um, maybe we'll do an episode one day on the Manhattan Project and, and yeah. the development of the bombs. And I think it is interesting. Yeah, but... I mean, Britain was very involved in the development of the nuclear bomb in, in, in America at the end of the Second World War. And was uh, there was an agreement between Roosevelt and Churchill that America would not use the nuclear bomb without... Uh, a permission and the agreement of Britain. Permission is probably too strong a word, but there would be an agreement about it. But then by the time this uh, August 1945, uh, Roosevelt was no longer alive. Churchill was no longer prime minister. And I don't think um, it occurred to America to even consult the British at that point. Yeah. But the Britain had a very large part to play in the creation of the nuclear bomb, British scientists and expertise. So uh, uh, that sometimes gets forgotten says the John waving his Union Jack in the corner. <laughs> Finished. <laughs> Thank you, caller. <laughs> so in uh, 1952, Russia have, uh, detonated their first H-bomb and the British government's panicking. So the Straith Committee is convened and they come up with a report. And um, in the report, they suggest that a... a night attack by the Soviets would kill 12 million people right. and seriously injure or disable 4 million others. And it said this would mean a loss of nearly one third of the population. Okay. Blast and heat would be the dominant hazard, accounting for more than 9 million fatal casualties against less than 3 million from radiation. Four of the 16 million casualties would be caused by a single bomb on London. Right. Blimey, it's so, pretty grim, isn't it? So it's pretty grim. Right. And this is in 1955, where obviously the threat the bombs got bigger during yes, the Cold War yes, period yes. and the threat of devastation was was greater. What do they what do they suggest we did then? So they recommended um that there were central government war headquarters built in Corsham, um, which uh, is in Wiltshire. And underground in Wiltshire, there is a massive bunker. It's called I bet Burlington you've been bunker. there. I, I haven't oh. because this is still uh well allegedly still in use so there are parts okay. of it that you can get into you can't it's not open to the public okay um i have seen documentaries where people have been into parts of it okay. but this is so big that they have um a road network God, underground that underground and um there are certainly parts of it that civilians have never been in i guess what we should look at is what would happen so after the straith report yeah so what would happen if a nuclear bomb Attack well, is right, imminent. That, that sounded pretty, oh, but imminent, right? right? Okay, if it was like the so, siren was going off, yeah. So it is thought that there would be a what they call a transition to war period. Yeah. Right? So it wasn't just out of the blue. No, there'd be tensions. Uh, there like, would be ten, a rising in tensions, yeah. and there would be a position where, uh, sorry, a period where you'd think, okay, this is going to happen. Right. Or it could happen. Um, so several things were put in place. Um, first of all, there was the Royal Observer Corps. Now, the Royal Observer Corps were volunteers they were civilian volunteers and they had, they they came about in 1925 after world war 1 when um the so they'd looked out for they were out with their binoculars on a well they initially were plane spotters before radar um so in 1925 uh, after world war 1 when um 
air warfare obviously started to be a thing. The Royal Observer Corps were established and they were plane spotters. So in World okay. War Two, that was their... Right. I don't mean, you know, like, I'm so, I'm like thinking with a certain, binoculars I'm thinking of a certain kind of man here. I'd say I'm seeing oh. badges, I'm seeing anoraks. <laughs> that was their uniform. It was yeah. an anorak and a pat lunch. Yes. Did they ever spot a girlfriend? No no girlfriends have been spotted, but... Okay. Sorry, carry on, Angela. So initially, at the end of World War Two. yeah. Radar started to be used. Yeah. Um, so it was felt that they weren't really, they were surplus to requirement now, the right. Royal Observer Corps. And so they were stood down, but then they were sort of reactivated as this new threat of nuclear warfare right. became in because it was um, sort of deemed that they could have a new role and their role would be in uh, plotting a nuclear attack and fallout. So volunteers, the Observer, got volunteers doing this. They were volunteers. Well, okay. So you had the, the U, it was called the UKWMO, which was the UK Warning and Monitoring Organization, was founded. Right. And they consisted of uh, the Royal Observer Corps, yep. essentially. And very, they were funded by the Home Office, various Home Office right. employees as well. And the Royal Observer Corps' role would be to give information about fallout, radiation, okay. the, what, what the danger was after attack. Okay. So how it would work is um, in the transition to war period, right? you'd get the idea that there's going to be a nuclear yeah. strike. Okay, your Royal Observer Corps volunteers, there's this bunch of gung-ho. Right. And, and I don't want to say any. they were... No, I'm sure they're serving their country and we, we probably owe them a great debt of service. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. of course, they, like, what they did was secret until yeah, yeah. the 1990s, really, when they were stood down yeah. and could talk about what they did during this time. Now, they were um, divided into uh, sectors across mm -hmm. the country. Um, so there were 31... ROC command centers, group control centers, right. as they were called. These were usually underground bunkers. Wow. Um, there's some you can go and look at today. There's one in York, which is run by English Heritage, I which bet, is very I good. I bet there's one you've been into. I've, been, I've got a picture of the York one on my wall there, no, John. Look, look at that. Not that um, Angela's obsessed with nuclear bunkers, but like, actually, most people have no, nice little sort of poster from Athena of, you know, <laughs> Monet's poppies or something, but... And she's got cost sections of nuclear bunkers next to a protect and survive. Our producer's poster. just realised he's actually got a York bunker oh, yeah, mug there that I've is. made Hold his coffee Spike's in. Spike's holding up a, a mug with a nuclear bunker on There's it. That's also... Nice. That's radioactive coffee you got there, Spike. There, there were 31 group... Um, HQs. So there's yeah. one in Maidstone where I grew up. This oh, is now okay. in a solicitor's car park, which I'm trying to locate the key holder of so I can have a look. There's one in Dundee, who, which I've become very friendly with the uh, okay, okay. people who own that now. So you're I'm, now, in fact, you're a stalker. I'm spending uh, Burns Night in the Dundee okay. ROC Group HQ. Well, you know bunker. how to have fun, don't you? <laughs> so I do know how to have fun, John. You're right. Um, in the dark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pretending, <laughs> no pretending the bomb has gone off. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so there were these 31 groups. But feeding into those groups were what were called Royal Observer Corps posts. Right Now, these are the things that I love. Yeah. There were probably about 1,500 of them across the country, in the countryside. Yeah. And you may have stumbled across one on your country walks. Um, you can spot them by, the, there's a, usually a green hatch above the ground. There'd also sometimes be a red metal thing, which is where the ground zero indicator what does that mean? Would be. Well, I'll tell you. This this is now what would have happened, John? Say you were in the Royal Observer Corps. Okay. Okay. Got my flask you were a and my volunteer, sandwiches. So you would 
go to meetings. Okay. Um, you would do your training, okay. and it was very. It was this, a bit. Am I, am I Gareth from the office? No, it was a bit like I, I'm not going to take the piss out of them because okay, I know no, a lot you're of right. them. You're right. You're right. No, I'm sure they're, they're, they're very good, incredible honorable. incredible people. Right. Um, but they were a bit like if you like the St John's ambulance in that okay. they were volunteers, but they took very seriously what they did, and okay. they had a really important role. And what they would have done, so transition to war period. They would have gone to one of these posts mm -hmm. out in the countryside. They would have been allocated which ones were theirs. Mm -hmm. Now, there may have been, say, five or six, seven or eight allocated to each post, volunteers. But it'd be the first three that got there that went in. Right. So once the three were in, they see you later doors. to the rest of them. Well, they locked the doors and, you know, the rest of you died. Yep, absolutely. The, you weren't allowed to take your family with you. You weren't allowed to tell your family what you were doing. They had signed a thing that said, in event of nuclear war, I am going there. Wow. Right, in transition to war. They would have gone there. Right. right? Into this so the place three of them in this, and it was men and women, so it wasn't okay. just three men necessarily, just, but three people uh, would have been in the post. And their job there was to monitor the blast and monitor fallout and radiation. Now, the way they monitor the blast, this is fun, this bit, right. Right, is they had something called a ground zero indicator, which was a pinhole camera. Okay. Okay, which sat above ground right. and had like photographic paper in. And the flash from the blast would make a print on the photographic paper. Okay. Which would then, because you had these bunkers all over the countryside, they would feed back that information to their headquarters. So there were secure telephone lines to the group headquarters, the big ones I've told you about, like in York or in Dundee. Yes, yes. And they would phone back. And once all this information had come from the different outposts, right. they would be able to triangulate where the blast had gone off. Right. right? All, yeah. And but out of the three of you that are in that little bunker, one of you, it's your job to go up every now and then and change the photographic paper. <laughs> or take it to blue. You to voting to do that? <laughs> yeah. So all I'm hearing is um, nuclear war. Uh, a man and two women, or two men and a woman, are locked underground for a long period of time. I'm seeing a new Channel Four program here. I'm seeing um, who's getting off with who. It's Love Island, but in a nuclear. They would bunker. have had water and food for two to three weeks. Right, and uh, and they would have had to get on. They would have had to get on. Yeah, they would have had to take it. There's one bed, so they take it in shifts to sleep. Wow. And like I say, that they'd probably draw straws and the well, the the observer corps. Uh, volunteers I've spoken to yeah. said it was sort of the plan was that the last one to get to the bunker was the one who was going to have to go up to the surface really and, so, you, the, so you'd, you'd get there training. as quickly as you, you could you'd get training your running speeds wouldn't absolutely you? so yeah. you didn't have to be the one who had to yeah. go up to the surface and <laughs> and you would come down when um, I've been in a few of these so when yeah. you come down the access shaft the loo is at the bottom so you'd go in there and you'd scrub and, and try and get all the radiation, all the radiation off, you. off you before you went back into the main bunker. In the main bunker, you had various bits of equipment. You had, uh, we've got your ground zero indicator. You also had a bomb power indicator, yep. which was a dial. And also above ground, which is another thing that you might spot in the countryside. There was yeah. a sort of um, tube and through which um, it was a, a kind of, duct if you like through which the shock waves of the bomb would register right. on your bomb power indicator the strength of right. the bomb where you were did they have a tease mate probably had a tease mate <laughs> it's British ones <laughs> <laughs> but that's I mean what's fascinating about this is the idea that this might have worked that mm. I can just so see these this, the communications breaking down the electromagnetic field meaning that the communications broke down or that the lines that were probably dug underground would have been destroyed yeah. uh, I just got a strong feeling in my gut that 
this would have been, you know, like the Northern Line and the Russia, it would have been like not working. Oh, almost certainly yeah, yeah. wouldn't have worked. And also, the, you know, they had enough to survive in there for three weeks, but they probably, you know, what are you going to come back each up other. to? Well, <laughs> but what, when you do come out after three weeks, what are you coming out to? Absolutely. You know, so it wasn't, um, these bunkers weren't designed for survival. They were designed yeah. for information gathering and then yeah. you'd probably die anyway. Right. Well, it's, yeah. Um, so, so, so thank you for volunteering. Yeah. But you get a medal. Yeah. A, a <laughs> posthumous. A little bad. <laughs> little, a little lapel pin. Yes. So that was your Royal Observer Corps. Yeah. And of course, they would feed back to the UK warning and monitoring people who were in the big bunkers, yeah. who were triangulating all the information they got from these little outposts yeah. to work out. The, and you would... Um, have to work out the weather system to see which way the fallout is yeah, going to go yeah. and, and things like that. So they had a really big responsibility should it have happened. Yeah. The, um, I love the code word they had. So you would have in transition to war. So you've got your three man people in their little bunkers. Yes. Right. And then in the big bunkers, the ROC headquarters, yeah. their headquarter bunk, you would have about 60 people uh, who would be Royal Observer Corps people and home office employees yeah and they would be taking all the information in and at the moment of the strike the code word that would be used by the royal observer court was toxin bang toxin bang so if you heard toxin bang that's when you all it sounds like a sort of a cleaning fluid you toxin that, bang toxin does <laughs> cleans the hardest stains also destroys the whole planet but what's his name the silly bang guy barry know. something oh yeah barry yeah i can't remember bethel but... Barry. Yeah. Barry Hearn. Producer Spike's looking at us like we're mad. You know. <laughs> Toxin bang. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Um, now, as time went on, they got a little bit more um, yeah. sophisticated in there. So in you would, rather than um, just getting information from these outposts, yeah. uh, various detection equipment was developed. So you had something called the Atomic Weapons Detection Recognition and Estimation of Yield Machine, known as Audrey. Audrey? Sure. <laughs> and each Excellent. one of these had an Audrey. In, right. And that would detect when a nuclear weapon had gone off. Unfortunately, sometimes it would go off um, at the wrong time when there was a lightning like, strike. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So, a nuclear weapon or a bit of thunder in the but distance. Generally speaking, if you weren't in tra uh, transition to war mode, yeah. if Audrey went off, you just went, oh, that must be lightning and turn oh, it yeah. off again. So, that's fine. That's hilarious. So, that's what was happening um, in the Royal Observer Corps headquarter bunkers. Um, they would also have in those bunkers, you'd have your home office employees, you'd have BT engineers oh, great. Um, in there and scientists as well. Okay, um, So these people have basically stitched it up for them to survive the nuclear war while all the artists well, no, no, and no. writers. What about the writers? No, no this is again. <laughs> Com we, comedy writers, were we there? I'm going to have to deal with this dog. Yeah. We're back. Sorry about that. We had to stop. My dog got diarrhea. <laughs> Charming. This is one of the effects of fallout, of course. Yeah, I mean, imagine absolutely. being in the nuclear bunker. She's got radiation sickness. There was, a, there was a, <laughs> one the American uh, uh, book I read. It said about this thing. Well, can your pet survive a nuclear war? And it was all about, can you take your pet in the bunker and stuff like this? It's like, no. No, no is the answer. <laughs> You're going to have to leave the dog outside and tell the kids. Absolutely. Well, if you watch Chernobyl, you'll know what happened to the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. We won't yeah. go into that. That's oh, spoiler alert. Yeah, spo spoiler alert. Doesn't sound good though, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> there are actually, just a little aside, but in Chernobyl now, yeah. um, there's these sort of dogs that have bred from the ones that were left okay. behind. So that there were these domestic 
pets were all left behind. Yeah. And now there's still young dogs there that have sort of bred from those. And are they sort of uh, affected by radiation? And you know... I, I don't think they're sort of six-legged super dogs. I don't think. No, I think we would but have heard about that. I don't know. Russians are very secretive, they famously. Six-legged six, six super dogs. <laughs> you see that on Paula Grady's dog soon. <laughs> so anyway, dog's been cleared up um, right. and we're back on it. So in the first half, we talked about sort of preparations yeah. on a governmental level, as well as the Royal Observer Corps, you'd have obviously all your, your ambulance service, the NHS, all of that all had their specific roles. Yes. They would be given uh, during time of crisis and they would attend training periodically yeah. during that period on what to do. Yeah. And, and there would be various exercises and stuff. Now, the government, this is an interesting one. Yeah. Um, the plans evolved during the Cold War period, but from the 60s, uh, the plan was that if a nuclear strike happened, yeah. from the moment the bomb landed, as yeah. it were, the central government would be devolved to 12 regions. Okay. Okay. Now, the idea being that in a transition to war period, so in that bit before the bomb comes, yeah. all the government ministers and important civil servants and some engineers and scientists and doctors and nurses or whatever would be taken to or Dispersed. would make their way to 12 regional so seats of government. It's like it's like the TV when we were a kid. It's like Television Southwest and Anglia <laughs> and uh, Yorkshire TV. It would be like so nationwide. Across the country, <laughs> these regional seats of government were built and they were massive bunkers. And these, these are all still there underground, are they? Uh, some of them are. Some of them have been demolished. Some of them are... There's one that's now a police training college. Wow. Um, there's one that... Some of were um, are still MOD use. They use for document storage and things like okay. that. Um, some of them you can go and visit. Uh, Kelvton Hatch being one in Essex, which is my personal favourite. Okay, so that um, would have, right. So that wouldn't have been London then. No, Essex would have been so yeah, thing. Yeah, well, no. So that would have been the metropolitan area. Oh, okay, wow. Would have gone to Essex. It's only twenty five miles from central. And you don't London. want to do it in central London because that would have been with the target, I suppose. Yeah. See. Right. I get it. So it's twenty five miles away, but you're yeah. also it was also near enough to radar stations as well. And I suppose nuclear devastation in Essex, you probably wouldn't notice much difference anyway. Uh, I'd like to point out that John O'Farrell said that, not me. Um, well um, done, John. Um, so, uh, and who would be the person in charge of, say, the South West? So, each region would yeah. have a commissioner. Mm, um, I don't like the sound of this guy. Well, we don't really know who they'd be. It would depend on your, uh, you know, who was in government at the yeah, time yeah. as to who they would have been. Probably quite high-level government ministers. Okay. Um, so you would have been... So Michael Gove to... would have been dictator of East of... Anglia or something. <laughs> oh, my God, what a terrifying place thought. For him. <laughs> <laughs> so it, each of these regional seats of government yeah. were built to hold... Three to six hundred people. Wow. Um, so you'd have your government ministers, you'd have yeah. civil servants, you'd have engineers and people to keep it going for up to three months. And so there the was food water and food supplies and... for up incredible. to three months. They were built underground, 10 feet of concrete encasing yeah. them, and a sort of wire mesh around them, which acted as a Faraday cage to protect signals. Oh. Um they there were across the country as well, the GPO, the post office, who were at that time before 1981, also responsible for telecommunications. Yes, yes. They had several underground exchanges across the country that were right. built especially for this use. A dial-a-disc. So these 12, <laughs> yeah. So these 12 um, bunkers could all talk to each other. Yeah, right? yes, again. And all 
communicate. Each one of these bunkers also had a BBC studio in it because, you know, nuclear right. attack, you still want Desert Island. You need the archers, don't you? Um, well, funnily <laughs> enough, they have broadcasts that would play out during that period. Oh, my God. And I it's believe not, the not archers you and yours. was part of it. Not you and yours. Definitely not, not quote, if you, unquote. That if you've was... got nuclear war, all you need is quote, unquote. That would be too much. <laughs> Nigel Reese, no, take me out. I'm going to run to ground zero. Um, it's all right. I never wanted to be booked on that program anyway. It's fine. <laughs> I've been on it. I went on it with uh, Christine Hamilton. Really? And I made a joke at her expense and she grabbed me by the throat and strangled me. On the, she doesn't really come across on radio. But uh, anyway, I've been I've been manhandled and strangled by Christine Hamilton. That's my, I'm sure you're not the first that's, or the last job. That's my quote-unquote experience. <laughs> so so they had uh, yeah BBC Studios yeah. in each one where they could broadcast to each other and to survivors, give advice to people yeah. above ground if there were any. Um, and the idea being that in each of these command centers uh sort of civilization would be rebuilt so right. there'd be no central government right. each regional commissioner had absolute power for their region Dictate, so they yeah. had power to administer justice to administer the judge um, jury executioner I absolutely yeah. so these were people who there would be be armed i expect and there would yeah. be uh, yeah. the, the power to kill and it's very important to point out that these bunkers were definitely not for civilians. Yeah. And had you tried to get into them, all of the doors were alarmed. Yeah. If you tried to enter one as a civilian, an alarm would have gone off and you would have been shot dead. Right. So, there and so then. That's an ordinary American home then. Absolutely. <laughs> um, under nuclear attack, that's how the country would be right. governed. In these bunkers with the political elite in them. Wow. Who would then attempt to so rebuild. So basically society. they'd all made it fine for themselves and sod everyone else. Yeah. In each of these bunkers, you had all the important ministries represented. Yeah. The idea being that there'd be a continuation of state once. Okay. Or the all clear was given. Yeah, yeah. They were allowed. They were had enough supplies to be under there for twelve weeks, three months. Okay. Um, at which point they would have to come to service and then deal yeah. with whatever. I remember there was a famous um, uh, GLC poster in the eighties, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but it was a, a reaction to this sort of mentality because they're. Which I'm sure you're going to talk about protect and survive in a minute, but the leaflet said something like, uh, "After after which you normal services should be continued." And it's like yeah. they showed a picture of <laughs> devastated, flattened London. It's like just uh, then uh, come out of your shelter and resume normal activities. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> It's not going to happen, guys. You're really not going to go to the bowls, yeah. you know, play garden course, bowl. But you had local councils on the surface, of course, where each local council had its own bunker. Yeah. And each council had its own plans yeah. that they wrote up. So a very right-wing council, like, for example, Wiltshire at the time, yeah. had very strong plans for really um, justice. Yes. <laughs> and, that, yeah. and it was basically that the army would come and execute justice and corporal punishment would be yes. your main sort of recourse Corporal to or capital? I mean, corporal. So what, beat you with um, a stick? Yeah, basically. Well, that's what they'd like um, to do now, I should think. The, the more <laughs> left-leaning councils... Yeah. They ju didn't really bother making plans. No, I mean, they just were, thought the whole thing was ridiculous, which it absolutely. was. Absolutely. And uh, um, um, so I remember this became a whole sort of political. This is probably a bit later again. Sorry, I'm jumping yeah. about. But the um, the idea of nuclear free zones, nuclear. Uh, yeah. the, uh, Labour councils in the 80s were like, we're not going to have uh, spend money on preparations. We're not going to have the psychology that we can survive a nuclear war. So we're going to uh, we're going to declare ourselves a nuclear free zone. I remember the the, yeah. the, the sign is... as you entered in Lambeth, where I live, it said a nuclear free zone. And the Tories would always go, what, weather permitting, you know. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you yeah. Could, <laughs> they didn't mean it like it that. Out. They meant that they were not, uh, they're not having any truck with the, the notion that the, uh, we can survive a nuclear war. Yeah, absolutely. And it was around the 1960s, so these regional seats of government have been built. Yep. Um, most of them were repurposed from old 
bunkers that were already Wartime being ones, built wherever. for. No, no, they were um, Cold War bunkers, but they right. were part of the Rota program, which was um, an air wow. um, defence okay. system. And I do say to people, go to Kelvton Hatch, go to Hack Green in Cheshire is open, Anstruther in Fife is open to the public. Do go look at them. They're incredible places. Um, Must have cost a fortune all this, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and as was always the case, the recommendations were always greater than what actually happened. So they were supposed to be custom built from new, these regional yeah. seats of government. They ended up being repurposed from other things because the government never had the money. It had to right. really do what it wanted to do. So it was under Thatcher um, in 1980 that the network was recast as a regional government headquarters. Um, and then under Thatcher, they had more up-to-date equipment was brought in, uh, telecommunications equipment, teleprinters, things. Yes. They were really brought up to speed in the, for the time. Yes, and I would say 80s. that in the, the sort of election of Reagan and uh, Thatcher sort of seemed to dial up the Cold War a little bit. Yeah. Um, a new generation of nuclear weapons. That's when I became reactive in CND. And that was the sort of main way I expressed myself politically in my sort of late teens and early 20s was going on CND marches because yeah. you felt like it was, we were the second generation now to live under this threat. Yeah. Um, and Reagan was, would make jokes about signing off the order to bomb Russia, you know. Yeah. And of course, what, what the CND and people were trying to um, make people aware of is that, mm. It was all nonsense, really. The government preparations yeah. for, for the general public were nonsense because it would be carnage. It would be all Absolutely. out war. It, that, you know, all the things it told you to do would, probably wouldn't help. No, <laughs> so it was, yeah. And, so, so and the, that there was a feeling, this is around the time as well of the, of the mid-60s, when um, there was a real fight back against the political elite at that yeah. time. So you yeah. had the Profumo affair. You yeah. had people Podcast. going, enough is enough. And... Um, the, that's when Spies for Peace happened. Now, this sort of was sort of born out of the CND movement. Yeah. And um, you had the Committee of 100, uh, which was 100 signatories, which included Bertrand Russell, who you quoted earlier. Um, and they were an anti-war group. Yeah. And then, along with Spies for Peace, they broke into one of these bunkers. Now, these bunkers were secret, in air quotes. Right. Um, but people, you know, you, you didn't miss a 300-person bunker being built on your back garden. Right, yeah. It's like <laughs> so a bond lair them, or something. The, you know. <laughs> the, the locations were known yeah. of some of them. The one in Kelvin Hatch, the locals just called it the hole in the ground. But I bet you they're not on the Ordnance Survey maps or anything. No, no, no. absolutely not, no. no. And um, what I love now is if you go to Kelvin Hatch or Fife, uh, on, as you drive up the road towards them, there's the big brown signs that say secret nuclear bunker this way. Really? Which, yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> I think hilarious. is lovely. Um, so Spies for Peace basically broke into RSG6, which is the regional six seat of government number six, which yeah. was in Reading, uh, Warren Row in we Reading. Well, try saying that if you're Jonathan Ross. Warren Row in Reading. And <laughs> um, they broke into it, took photos, photocopied documents and wow. stuff. And they then, um, they made a pamphlet, which was called Danger, Official Secret RSG6. They made 4,000 copies of the pamphlet and they distributed it to the press, to peace activists. Wow. And uh, during that When would this have been, roughly? This was mid-60s. Right, okay. So during the Easter Aldermaston marches from then on, detoured yeah. to RSG6 where they had a picket. They also found the Cambridge bunker and had a picket there. Yeah. So the public were being made aware of these yeah, yeah. at the time. And and, and, and and I suppose the taxpayers sitting there thinking, going, okay, so you've spent all this money on making sure that you survive the nuclear war. Yeah. And, and what nothing we got, on some us. crappy leaflets. And we got some crappy leaflets and yeah. uh, the recommendation to uh, hide under a, a, a door with some sandbags or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we, there were various, at the time, um, books were written 
uh, sort of exposing some of yeah. this stuff. You have War Plan UK, which is written in 1983 by Duncan Campbell, yeah. who was um, a part of, of yeah. Spies for Peace and all of that movement. Yeah. Um, he wrote Protest and Survive as well, I think. Protest and Survive, yeah, yes. I remember that one. Which, which was in, that. in reaction to the Protect and Survive, which yeah. we'll come on to in a minute. Yeah. Um, and then you had Beneath the City Streets, which was written by Peter Laurie um, in the, I think the original version was in 1979. And then he kept reprinting it when he got more information. Yeah, yeah. Um, so around the 60s and 70s, the public was starting to be a bit like, yeah. all right, well, you, you sort yourselves out. What yeah, about yeah, us? Yeah, you know, yeah. in this, and it was becoming and more apparent that, that that they weren't being told the full story. And also, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, uh, the whole notion that you can prepare for a nuclear war is sort of laughable. So that's why these things come across as ridiculous yeah. and sort of uh, bizarre is because if the, uh, uh, you know, 10 hydrogen bombs are going to be dropped on British cities. It's the end, basically. There's no point yeah. saying, have you got enough still water? But at the beginning, that wasn't the narrative. At the beginning, no. it was very much, look, like you said, the quote you said earlier, look, Hiroshima, they, most of yeah. them are all right. Yeah. So we'll be all right. And that's yeah. what people believed in the sort of 50s and the early part of it. So what were households told? Well, in the first leaflet that went out uh, was in 1952. Went out to households called Civil Defence and the Atom Bomb. And that was very much, um, uh, it was just, Four pages distributed by the Home Office. Yeah. Very simple sort of. Uh, and the the narrative then was to evacuate, get your cars and go right, um, the, to yeah. a place of safety. Because it was felt that that was something at that time that could be done. But then the H-bomb right. was so um, much worse. built. So in 1957, they came up with a new leaflet that went out to households called the Hydrogen Bomb. Right. Um, uh, this was following the Strafe Report, which we talked yeah. about uh, afterwards. So the, so, the, so the Russians were developing massive weapons, and we were producing leaflets. Yeah, and at this <laughs> at this point, uh, the advice was still to to get your cars and go. Right. Um, then uh, they had uh, in 1963 a leaflet went out, uh, which was called "Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack," and that was the week that was did a sketch about it, okay. which you can find on YouTube. It's very funny, and it was basically like. You know, people by that point were where sort of, you're going to die. This yeah, is, yeah. Um, it had some also dangerously wrong advice in it. Uh, the that particular leaflet that went out to all households. Um, for a start, they advised uh, using baking powder instead of baking soda on burns, which would have been very harmful if you actually applied baking. <laughs> don't don't put baking powder on your burns, people. So, if there's um, unless, anyone listening, if there is a nuclear war. You know, when you're listening to this podcast, just make sure you've got that difference right. Yeah, make, <laughs> baking soda, yeah. baking powder, powder. Uh, soda powder, different yeah. things. That's all. Then you're fine. Um, then you're fine if you know that. It also talked about self evacuation, so it was about. Um, it sounds like shitting yourself. It does. It does. It sounds like what your dog just did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no. So the advice was just to to get to a place of safety, yeah. and but it was a legal requirement to take your neighbours with you if they had didn't have their own means. Uh, you could be oh, arrested right. for having an empty seat in your car. Right. While evacuate being evacuated, um, this is provisions because would the cars, be made. The cars would have been sitting in one massive tailback along the sort oh, of oh yeah, uh, absolutely. There would have been a quick anyway. Lock. Quick lock, quick one lock. car broken down. Um, uh, provisions would be made for disabled people. Um, the dispersal scheme they called it at that point, but it was actually reviewed and shelved in 1966 when uh, advice from 1966 onwards was actually to stay put. Um, now uh, this right. was the advice that was reiterated in Protect and Survive. Protect and Survive yes, is really we... interesting, right? Because people think of the Protect and Survive leaflet. Yeah. But it started life before it was a leaflet as a... a, a they ran it like an advertising campaign. So yes. the idea was that we're in the 70s now. Yeah. And... Um, People are, uh, are getting their media in a different way, right? They're watching TV, they're listening yeah. to the radio, they're, um, and print media is not 
it's, it's starting to become less yeah. um, of, of a means of getting information out to people. Television was the main means of distributing yeah. information. So they started making um, little videos, um, which are on YouTube. They're really, and they were made by, um, oh gosh, what's the name of, the, hang on, I've got it written down somewhere. It's going to annoy me. Uh, Richard Taylor cartoon films who are the people oh, who God. made Crystal Tips and Alistair That's hilarious Charlie says so, 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 so really is, sort of quaint little animations yeah this is the era of, of your uh, public, public information service. film yeah, yeah broadcasting stuff yes. so um, they were little cartooned uh, they were voiced by Patrick Allen um, who had a very uh, reassuring lovely, voice. reassuring if voice. Face is I always off. say that you listen to, if you watch one of these films, it sort of starts off really nice and then gets really chilling. It's like getting a hug and then opening yeah. your eyes and seeing it's Michael Gove. You know, it right. sort of starts off like you're like, oh, this is very comforting. Like, oh my God, what's he saying? Um, so the, the films uh, and radio tapes, they were completed in 1976 and the Protectors 5 booklets were made as an accompaniment to that. And originally only 2,000 of them were printed and they went to uh, the chief of police and local authorities. Yeah. They weren't for... for public distribution. Public widespread distribution. distribution, right. Now, the idea was that um, in a what they called a low-level crisis period. So yeah. if tensions started to rise, you're like, well, that's when the videos would be played. Yeah. Um, so this never actually happened. Um, but that's when the video would be played on TV yeah. and uh, the messages would be played on the radio. You then have the preparatory period, um, at which point a second set of films were made. And these films were a bit more about practical stuff. So the original films were about what happens in a nuclear attack. What is fallout? What is this? Yeah. What is The second set of films were very much about this is how you build a fallout room. Okay, so This that, is yeah. what provisions you need to buy. Which is the, And all this, is, this stuff is what got mocked, isn't it? The idea that you can build your own nuclear bunker. Absolutely. With a, with it was all about the sanitary cushions. requirements and about how you deal with burying the dead. Wow. Right? So, so that was in the preparatory period. And then you had the third period was the probable inevitability of war period, at which point the films and radio broadcasts would be played constantly and repeatedly. Um, and pub, uh, protect and survive the leaflet was never intended to be published until this point. Right. right. So at this point where you're like, war's inevitable, get the leaflets out. But because of other media had let slip what yeah. these plans were. So there was a very famous um, episode of Panorama called right. If the Bomb Drops, which yeah, was hosted yeah. by a very young Jeremy Paxman. Oh my God, that's horrific um, Have you seen it? No, I haven't, but it's, I think, I think it's on YouTube. Yeah. I've, I've definitely seen it. Um, I think, yeah, I think it is on YouTube. And it's sort of exposing these plans. And it's exposing these plans. So people are like, well, where are these leaflets? Yeah, then yeah, why haven't I got one if yeah, this yeah. is what I need to do to prepare? So they did make it available, um, the leaflet. I've actually got a copy of it here. Yeah, we should uh, we yeah, should this tweet is this. An original Protect and Survive copy. Wow, um, there's some great and, quotes from this, aren't there? There's some ridiculous. Sort of, uh, there's some, but my favourite thing that's in it is it tells you about your provisions to have. You know, it yeah. tells you how much water to store and yeah. tinned food and tin openers, obviously. And my yeah. favourite thing is it suggests in your fallout room you have a table and chairs oh, that's because we're idea. British, and even if we're under nuclear attack, we're not going to eat off our laps like savages. That's the. <laughs> that's fair. But they've got <laughs> things like. You've got, you can, if uh, someone tries to get into your uh, bunker, it's like, I've got a gun and I'm prepared to use it. Yeah. I think it was a quote that um, uh, Neil from The Young Ones read out when he was, they were preparing themselves for a well, nuclear that's attack. It. it was ridiculed in The Young Ones. Didn't he paint himself white? Where Neil was like, <laughs> I'm reading Protect Survive. It's to, to deflect the, the flash of the bomb. Because they did say paint your windows white. They said paint your windows white. Um, because yeah. in Hiroshima, it was found that people that were wearing white yeah. and black and white stripes were burnt in stripes. So the white stripes reflected... Uh, Right. Deflected, yeah, some of the heat. 
Um, I mean, a lot of the advice was things like take your doors off the hinges to build your fallout room by leaning the doors against the wall and packing it with sandbags and cushions. And Cushions are not uh, going to stop a thermonuclear th device. There's, there's various theories about Protect and Survive that have never yeah. been um, sort of, we don't know if it's, but one of the theories is that what you were doing by building the fallout shelter that it described in Protect and Survive was actually just building your own funeral pyre. Right, just to get it, keep, meant keep that, you busy. Well, it just meant that afterwards your yeah. body wouldn't be a body that had to be cleared up. It would right. be burnt in the, yeah. you know, Shut up, um, Tina. sort of self-cremation. We've got a pro uh, nuclear protester in the room, little dog. Yeah, Uncle sorry Paul. about that. Tina's um, on guard in our <laughs> in our bunker here. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty much ridiculed. Yeah. There was a great, um, I don't know if you've seen the film or read the book, When the Wind Blows. Yes, I remember the Raymond Briggs thing. Uh, yeah, Raymond that's Briggs. Yeah, that's um, sort of uh, two sort of, uh, ordinary British. It's ordinary Jim British and Hilda couple. blogs. Yes, from and Gentleman Jim. An old, yeah, yeah. and they're a sort of older couple. They lived through the war. They've they lived through the war, and, and Jim is very much a patriot, you know, and he gets these protect and survive. He gets his advice, and they're in a transition to war period. So he does yeah. what he's told to do. He builds a fallout shelter, and yeah. they're these sort of stoic couple and, and spoiler alert what, i mean they die horrific they die horrific death and um it's a lovely <laughs> it's present for your kids if they want a nice little uh it's sorry, so you call it a graphic novel now i suppose well uh, yeah uh yeah i've had, i've got a copy of yeah. the original yeah. when the wind blows uh, but also it was a film yeah. um it's made into a film david bowie sang the did he the when the wind blows title track um, When the wind blows basically that's it um but I remember watching it when I was far too young because by Raymond yeah. Briggs who did the snowman, right? Yeah, yeah. Fungus the bogeyman. And suddenly, so my mum and dad were like, oh, it's oh, that guy you like. Yeah, look, their teeth are falling out from the radiation. Yeah, yeah. So let me just put this out there right now. When the wind blows, not for the children. Not for Categorically children. not for children. Yeah. It's beautifully done. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I remember uh, uh, kids being, and being scared of uh, nuclear war when I was a kid mm. and, you know, uh, the shadow that hung over us and just things where shows like Threads and yeah. some of these uh, uh, what's it, war games war games these things uh, um, sort of kept you awake at night and yeah absolutely so, I can I remember being frightened I can remember saying to my dad what will happen if a nuclear bomb goes off and he'd yeah. say we'd all die good night <laughs> good night <laughs> shall I leave light on light off yeah uh, yeah, yeah so yeah I mean um, uh, I mean if I can talk about um, um, America a little bit just what they were doing over there because they had this uh, even more farcical thing of duck and cover oh yeah they had that whole thing where kids <laughs> they had drills in classrooms they had drills right? in classrooms where you put your elbows over your heads and your head's under the desk and they had these little songs going duck and cover duck and cover and uh, famously able to withstand that's it yeah, yes and then um, uh, then they had this whole um, local militias called the Minutemen who were prepared uh, they were like the survivalists and they had their own um uh, network. They were basically the National Rifle Association, sort of a self-appointed uh, citizens' army that were going to uh, have their own bunkers with um, guns and ammunition and food, ready to fight the Reds when they invaded. And there were these people had branches all over America. The Minutemen, mm. self-appointed anti-commie uh, militias. Can you imagine <laughs> being one of them? And then they, there was up in uh, New Mexico. There was a whole school built underground, the Abo School in New Mexico. Um, just as a, in case there was a nuclear war, so these kids went to their daily lessons underground uh, in the you know with no no sunlight, no daylight, but they were at least secure. All uh, had rickets, all, but uh, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> rickets. But well, of course, they all they made them uh, less well balanced and less uh, um, you know at ease with themselves because they're constantly aware of the threat of being blown to pieces. So maybe the Brits had it right. Well, I think I think there was a 
a, a, a decision that every individual made is which was there's nothing I can do about this. Yeah. So people didn't buy uh, in America. They were going, they had door to door salesmen trying to sell nuclear yeah. shelters. Well, and people wouldn't people wouldn't get them because no, they're like, nah. What's they, they tried to market them here and people weren't yeah. really interested. There's an episode of Only Fools and Horses. I don't know if you've seen it where <laughs> right. um, Del Boy finds a an old fallout shelter and they build it but they build it on the roof of Nelson Mandela house which I'm not sure <laughs> would have offered Rodney. them a lot of protection which yeah. is a really good episode yeah yeah I mean, um, I think you know because at least in the in the blitz you can understand okay there's these bombs come in and if we build a, a Anderson shelter at the bottom of the garden we might survive the house collapsing yeah. but with a nuclear war people made the sort of uh, the decision there's not really much we can do about this yeah. so we're not going to even spend what little money we have on a nuclear fallout shelter to survive mm. uh, the first blast and then come out and starve to death and die of radiation poisoning. I recently interviewed um, there's a guy called Gavin Saxby who is restoring a this bunker in Dundee, the one I was talking about earlier. Yeah, and he's in charge of the restoration project. And um, and I said to him, you know, if the worst happened now, would you go to the bunker? And yeah. he said, no, I'd run towards Ground Zero because wow. life Get in the bunker would be horrible and what would you come to the surface to yeah so i think that's it i think the key is if a nuclear attack happens yeah. god let me be near the bit where it's over quickly absolutely yeah you know? i mean um um there's a, a, a there's a good picture in this nuclear war in the uk book that you recommended to me of uh, somebody building their own nuclear shelter uh, with some uh, uh chest of drawers cushions and a suitcase that was actually used as the cover for Karma Police by Radiohead. Oh, really? that yeah, that, 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 that particular image. Maybe I'll tweet that out yeah. for people to see. But, um, I mean, basically, we all understand how terrible it is and how you wouldn't have survived and millions would have died. Mm. And I, you, you question why the government was sort of uh, issuing these leaflets and uh, half hearted. I guess it had to be seen to be doing something. I think that's probably it. Yeah. Um, because you, the, the the alternative of admitting the total sort of uh, devastation that would be wreaked by a sort of all-out nuclear war is like makes people unable to live with themselves. I yeah, suppose. absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we end this, can I do some suggested reading? Because yes, I could absolutely. have. I've had to really rein in. I bet you have <laughs> some bits on this because it is. So if people do want to read more about it, this uh, the nuclear war in the UK. The book you talked about, Tara Young. It's a new book, um, and it's really good. And you can follow him on Twitter. And I've forgotten his Twitter. Ah, uh, it's something like at Cold War History. Okay. Um, but he's very, very good. Um, Tara Young. That's T A R A S. Um, the books I would suggest reading. Attack Warning Red is a brilliant book about the Royal Observer Corps and their preparations for nuclear war. Yeah. Um, Beneath the City Streets by Peter Laurie and War Plan UK by Duncan Campbell are good contemporary books yeah. um, from the time. And there's a brilliant book called Cold War Secret Nuclear Bunkers, if it's the bunkers that you're into, which is what I'm into, uh, by Nick McCamley, um, which is also very plenty good. plenty going on with. I've read uh, One Nation Underground, The Fallout Shelter in American Culture by Kenneth D. Rose. And this is a... It's a very well-written uh, book about the whole psychology of the bunker in America, and it's quite very witty. different to here. Yeah, very. Yeah. I mean, fascinating how different it was. Uh, the uh, the notion that it was up to the individual to get their own, the very American uh, mm. attitude. It's up to the individual to provide their own nuclear fallout shelter, and if you didn't have one, you were uh, you know letting the you're letting the country down, even if you li lived in an apartment block or had yeah. no money, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, that meanwhile they had sort of uh, Disney doing uh, cartoons about the 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 atom is your friend, and uh, <laughs> uh, if it's uh, if its power is. Uh, uh, harnessed responsibly, it can be like a, a natural spring water, letting forward power gently instead of being uh, a bursting dam. You know, so they did this yeah. whole thing. They had Bert the turtle showing how you you can take shelter, and they had a um, you know 
whole uh, underground uh, motel at uh, Chicago Airport that had uh, 500 guests and was you could you could check in and survive the overnight nuclear attack if you're in that particular motel. It's a fascinating <laughs> thing. Groucho Marx had his own nuclear shelter. I didn't know that. Uh, as did uh, various other celebrities. But yeah, this is much more on the American take of things. Uh, and um, the whole duck and cover thing, I think we've seen uh, you know, parodies of it, but it was mm. insane how uh, American school children were sort of uh, drilled in how to survive. imagine imagine they could survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the only other thing I'd say about it is the nuclear war bombs are still there. So we, we've got yeah. this idea that all ended in 91. The tension between East and West diminished after 91. But these missiles are still mm. pointing uh, at uh, London and but Moscow. But of course, and... there, there will be uh, contemporary government preparations. We just won't know what they are until yes, they're decommissioned. Yeah. The only reason we know what we know about the Cold War is that after the 90s, you know, information yeah. became available. A lot of this information wasn't available that we talked about today until 2002 yeah. or later. So, so... You know, an accident could happen at any time. So with this, you know, so, <laughs> so, so, but, but, so download some podcasts. You're going to be in the um, fallout shelter for quite a while. So you'll need all of the We Are History podcasts. My main concern is you won't be able to rate them. Once the, yeah, once the bomb goes off, you won't be able to give us five Will stars. Will there be Wi-Fi in the well, yeah. bunker? That's so, the question, so, so isn't it? Download them onto your hard drive is my recommendation. Yeah, do that right now. Give and us, and give rate us, them now. Rate them now. Share them with your friends. Late. And uh, <laughs> listen to the rest of the series. I think that's everything. Thank you, Angela, for sharing your expertise on this. I'm I, sorry I'm if I was a bit of a... No, no, I was a, I was a, a listener and a, and, a, and, a, and a nodder during this one because I really don't know anything as half as much as you do about these. I read the books you said, but God, you know your stuff on this one. Well, there's and there's <laughs> loads of books to read. And But the most important thing, go and see some of these bunkers. The York Cold War Bunker has a very good talk. It's English Heritage. Um, uh, Kelvin Hatch in Essex, yeah. Hack Green in Cheshire, and Anstruther in Fife. Okay. And... Um, mm. We'll, we'll, we'll open the curtains here. We'll uh, end this podcast, come out of the hatch and see if <laughs> life outside survives. Thank you very much, Spike, our, our producer and engineer. And uh, we'll catch you next time on We Are History. Goodbye. Cool. That's a long one.